Sanyal, Sanjoy Sanyal, and the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique clean tech consulting firm. Our new ventures podcast series brings to you conversations with thinkers and practitioners in the area of environmental innovation. Welcome to the new ventures podcast. Our guest for today is Gabriel Landau, the founder of Charm Impact. Charm Impact allows peer-to-peer lending for clean energy projects in emerging markets. Welcome to the new ventures podcast, Gabriel. Thanks very much for having me, Sanjoy. So tell us a little bit about what prompted you and your co-founder to set up Charm Impact. Sure thing. Yeah. So I'll start by just giving a quick whistle-stop tour of my career to date, because I think it adds a bit of how, how this all kind of came together. So when I first graduated university, I went to Cambodia for three months, uh, where I was an English teacher, actually, um, for a little while. I then came back from Cambodia and joined Accenture as a, a graduate and spent the next five and a half years there working in financial services and commodities trading. And that's what really got me into energy as a kind of industry as a whole. And then essentially I reached a stasis in my career where I knew I wanted to be working in renewables and I knew I wanted to be working in high tech, but there weren't any opportunities to do that in Accenture UK at the time. So I left, um, I went and started working at a startup where I was there for a year. And essentially we were developing a peer-to-peer energy trading system where we would monitor the amount of solar power you could generate on your roof, work out how much you'd actually consume that day based on your demand consumption, and then trade the excess energy you generated with your neighbors, for example. So it was a really, really interesting kind of conceptual project. And then while I was actually working there, I met a company uh, based out of Bangladesh called SolShare, and they were following a very similar concept where they were working on trading solar energy between um, mesh grids, but rather than doing it within uh, grid-connected Britain, they were actually trading energy within rural Bangladeshi slums and homes and villages. And so it was kind of a real eye-opener for me, to be honest, to see a similar concept but being used in a very different way and having a much greater social and environmental impact than than we were having and so this really changed my whole career trajectory it really made me start focusing on the energy transition and seeing how can i find some problems here and what can i do to solve them so uh, i quit my job and essentially went out and took a very big question and said why doesn't everyone have access to electricity where are there gaps in the market and what can we do to solve those problems So after about six months of research and networking and pilot projects and and kind of getting out into the field a little bit, we saw that maybe unsurprisingly in hindsight, actually, that access to finance was a really big missing puzzle piece in the ability to achieve universal electrification. That's a really bold statement. Um, But when we distilled this down further, what we saw was that especially companies at the earliest stage of their commercialization journey, Uh, And then even further, when we look at those with all local founding teams or or female founding teams as well, that they really were the most difficult to access finance. And so what we found was to help these companies to bridge the valley of death or or otherwise known as the pioneer gap, they needed capital tailored to their businesses. And so that's what Charm set out to do. Then it was a question of finding what's the right type of capital and who should we get it from? And so what we saw was a big opportunity where within the within developed economies, we're seeing a big 
a big narrative shift where people want to be doing something about climate change. They care about uh, different aspects of their lives. And we're seeing a big, a big shift in the way we're um, seeing, you know, sustainable shopping habits. People are recycling a lot more. People are aware of their carbon footprint, but there's still a huge lack of opportunity to use your money uh, and your finances to actually make a difference. And so what we've done is we've created our own peer-to-peer impact investment platform that enables people to do just that. So they invest through our platform to incredible entrepreneurs that we work with across sub-Saharan Africa primarily, um, although we also have one project within South Asia. And they are making an investment. They're making loans to these entrepreneurs that not only earn them a financial return, but generate a significant impact upside. So our loans range from as little as £10,000 and go up to 250000 And the idea is that we work with entrepreneurs over several loans, helping them to create a positive credit history, a positive credit score, so that they can essentially graduate from charm is the way we like to refer to it, so that they can then go and access the investment from later stage investors that are already operating within the industry. This is great, actually. And I'm so happy that you learned your wares, if you may, from Bangladesh, which, of course, is the world's leader in uh, renewable energy solutions, solar home system market. And actually, we do have a podcast uh, about Bangladesh as well on this channel. Nice. Uh, but but um, the other interesting thing for me about Charm and Pat is that you focus on local entrepreneurs. And you know that I have really worked in this area in Africa quite a bit. Before we get there, one thing that's really struck me is that you believe in your solution. And in fact, for Charm Impact yourselves, you raised funding through a crowdfunding campaign. You raised about 240,000 pounds from about 500 investors. Tell us how you went about the process and what should other entrepreneurs learn about? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we, were, we were very you know, fortunate, I suppose, and tactful where we did our crowdfunding campaign for ourselves this is equity crowdfunding. So uh, giving away shares in charm in exchange for capital rather than debt crowdfunding or lend peer to peer lending the type of uh, product that charm offers. Um, but essentially, what we saw was that we we needed to attract a crowd of our own. And so we thought that a really great route to doing this was by crowdfunding for ourselves. And so an important aspect for that is we then don't just have 500 investors who just receive an update, you know, on a quarterly basis. Actually, these are our brand advocates. These are our brand champions, and we need them to help us to further build our crowd to share our message with their communities and their networks and saying, hey, you know, look at what these guys are doing. It's, it's really great. It's having some real impact and maybe you should check them out. So there was a very strategic element. We both needed the capital, but also we wanted those brand champions that can help take us to the next level. Um, and we've seen really great response from, from some of the core members of that investor community of those 500 investors um, that are really making a big difference for us and our ability to scale. Your next question was around um, what can people learn and, and kind of things about the process. So there's a, quite a few things here, and I'll, I'll try and keep them quite short and condensed. But so the first one is kind of a twofold piece. When you go about crowdfunding, uh, you need to have an anchor investment to start with which sounds counterintuitive, but you don't, you can't just go to the market and say, hey, here's my great idea. Strangers, please give me some money. You need to have an anchor investment to really heighten the success of your raise. And so you have to go and pre-raise some capital ahead of time. And that can be from individuals, from angels, from another, uh, you know, a VC firm, any, any source of the capital you can find. And then you also want to get as many people investing in your product as possible and into your raise in order to, again, heighten the success for when strangers look at it. And actually one of our 
one of our um, advisors once said to me, he said, if you can't get your friends and family to believe in your vision, why will complete strangers? And I think it's a really nice way to look at this. So even if they're only putting in very, very small amounts of money, you know, 10 pounds was our minimum investment, but it shows the number of investors you can attract as well as the amount of capital you can attract. So I think those are really important points. And, you know, a lot of people within your network would be willing to support you and understand your vision. So I think that's the first point we really learned. And it took a while for us, you know, we don't have a particularly wealthy network of individuals. So it was quite a lot of smaller tickets from a large number of people to get us that anchor. We could aggregate it together to then take to the crowdfunding platform to then raise raise further money from more people. The next challenge we had, and it's kind of twofold, is capturing the essence of what we do in a video. So there's two parts to this, you know, how do you take an intangible concept like peer-to-peer finance, right, to actually put it into a video? And the other side is how do we demonstrate the meaningful impact that the loans and the work that our, our portfolio and our borrower companies do when it's so far removed from a lot of what people's reality is, is who are the ones who are going to be investing? And so we worked with an incredible team um, from a company called Story by Design, and they helped us to curate a fantastic video that really captured the essence of the work we do involved. You know, we had a videographer in London filming us. We had a videographer in Abuja in Nigeria filming two of our portfolio companies. Uh, and then it was all collated uh, by a lady in Australia. So it was quite an international affair, but the video turned out really, really well um, and really, I think, helped to get across our narrative in a really nice way. And I think that's the the next point I had also was you need to focus on what the narrative is that you're creating that will resonate with that audience. Um, Maybe a typical marketing ideal to think of, but telling people that there's a big access to finance gap for early stage entrepreneurs doesn't really resonate with people. Whereas what we did for our crowdfunding campaign was we said we were changing the way the world invests. And we focus more on the investors and more on the opportunity for them to make a difference with their money and to invest in a completely different way to what they're used to. You know, you're investing in private companies in developed market, developing markets, and it makes a huge difference. And so really work on constructing that narrative that's going to resonate with the widest audience, uh, because you're not going to speak to most of the people who are actually going to come and invest and they don't get the chance to connect with you personally. The final thought I had on this question, Sandro, when you asked it was actually, you know, a lot of people, I think, view crowdfunding as, let's say, dumb money and that people just throw money at stuff and they're not really going to be considerate. But actually, if you treat it that way, you're definitely going to fail in my mind. And you have to be ready to engage, to be challenged, to be transparent and share a lot of information with the world, which typically goes against the grain of a lot of what we think of kind of protect your IP, don't tell people this, don't tell people that. Um, But actually, it's really, it's eye opening. And I think it's really healthy to share that with people and have challenge and have different perspectives that helps to create a better overall product for you going forwards, especially raising during the pandemic, we were a little bit nervous, um, but we were very happy with the outcome um, and with the support we've received. And it's kind of set us on the right trajectory now for starting to scale up. Great. And I'm glad it turned out well. I mean, what I'm taking away from this is communication, communicating to a core group and communicating your narrative very precisely and engaging them. And that's really what I'm taking away. Absolutely. But moving away from your own uh, journey, you know, the work that you do now, Obviously, you know that a good company is known by the success of its clients. You have already talked about this, your support to local entrepreneurs in Africa. Tell us something about your clients and the success they have had. 
Absolutely. So I, I think you capture it really beautifully when you say the good company is known by the success of its clients. It's exactly, is everything for us, right? And it's really, it's all about the borrowers. It's all about those partner companies as we actually refer to them internally. And so the first thing I wanted to pull out was just kind of what do we define as local? Because I think that's a, a challenge in the industry is having some consistency. So we define local, maybe unsurprisingly, but I don't think there is a universal definition used as just a national of the country of implementation. And as a co-founder, is someone who owns at least 10% or more of the company. So when we say that, you know, of the nine loans we've dispersed, 78% are led by local founders based in the country of implementation, we have a very clear view of our impact metric and our impact investment thesis. We know that 100% of them have local staff actually leading the implementation. We know that the 33% of our portfolio so far are co-founded or managed by women. And 100% of our portfolio are led by people of color, which are quite incredible stats. And it shows that we've, you know, we don't have our impact investment thesis just for a thesis. It's not a hypothetical situation. You know, it's really what influences our decision-making processes. It is embedded and baked into our credit and impact assessments before we choose products. And so, yeah, it's, it's really great to see the actually that the market is now starting to respond to that as well and recognizing this gap. And I know you've done loads of work on this um, and a big shout out to, to your most recent paper, or maybe it's not your most recent, but with the World Resources Institute, it was excellent. And it was really well articulated view of why, why are we not funding local entrepreneurs, how they know their market so much better. They know their customers so much better. And how do we need to tailor our instruments, our financial instruments appropriately to help them have the highest likelihood of success? So uh, a couple of our example projects, um, one of them is, is a company called Winok. Uh, they're run by a gentleman called Akin Sami Lajuomi, uh, based out of Abuja, Nigeria. Uh, and Sami, he essentially, what they do is they help local micro businesses to remove their reliance on diesel generators and actually solarize their business. So a good example of their type of customer is a barber or a tailor. You have some convenience stores, uh, mobile phone charging shops is a very big customer, big business out there. And he provides solar power from around one kilowatt to five kilowatts for these micro businesses. And they do it on a pay to own basis over, well, it depends on their payment plan, but between 18 to 24 months to own it outright. Now, when we think of the, the impact they generate, it's really, it's amazing, right? So they start off, they're already spending money on a diesel generator, spending in excess of what they're going to now pay for solar systems. They're immediately saving money and also able to immediately offset the CO2 that they're already pumping into the air with these diesel generators or petrol generators that are littered over markets ac across Nigeria, especially. But I, I, I don't mean to broad brush the continent, but most markets that I have visited at least have diesel generators all over the place. And it's a big business to remove them and a huge, huge impact. So they immediately have cost savings from removal of those diesel generators and transferring to a solar payment plan, which is cheaper. And then after they've paid off for their solar system, they now own the actual product outright and they're no longer paying. And so it has a huge livelihoods increase as well as the ability to have a climate impact and they're good customers, right? Their customers are already paying more for the diesel maintenance and the, the generator maintenance and the diesel petrol itself, then they're gonna be paying for the solar. So it makes for good customers, low default rates and a really high impact. So it's one of our real excellent projects. We're really proud of, of Sammy and the work he does. I think it's, it's really inspiring um, and a local entrepreneur. Sandra, I don't know if we want me to go through more portfolio company examples, but I'm more than happy to. This is obviously a, in a great uh, story, Gabriel. It, uh, you know, you talked about my paper, but this is really putting 
the recommendations in action. And so fantastic. May, could you tell us one more story? I mean, uh, maybe from country other than Nigeria, if it is possible? Yeah, sure thing. So um, another company that I think we've done an interesting piece of work that ties into some of the other things we're working on is, is a company called Haven Hill Synergy. So they are a, a mini grid developer based out of Nigeria, uh, and they've just received uh, actually quite a large capital investment from a local financier, which is really impressive to see to help them build out even more mini grids. But one of the an exciting project we've done with them, we did they were our very first loan, uh, and then we did a second loan with them, where essentially they've been able to achieve a results-based financing facility from Power Africa to electrify 21 primary healthcare facilities uh, within Oyo State in Nigeria. And what was really is a hard these RBFs because you as a company, you have a guarantee of money coming in as long as you can deliver on the project. And so you need to have access to finance to generally purchase inventory to actually do this deployment. And so we provided a loan of just about £100,000 for Haven Hill Synergy. And what this did was it enabled them to achieve economies of scale to purchase the actual inventory itself and deliver the impact they want by deploying solar power for 21 primary healthcare facilities who are either connected to a very weak grid or didn't have any grid connection at all. And then what's really a different model for us to look at is that in this instance, rather than relying on you know, a poor household's to be paying for the actual solutions, what you're relying on is an RBF grant to deliver. And so the risk profile shifts from a customer repayment risk, which is typically what we've seen in the solar sector from you know, solar home system deployment, where you're targeting low-income customers to be paying for a system over time, to a delivery risk. As long as the company is able to operationally deliver on the terms of the grant, they're going to get paid, which means our investors get paid and everyone benefits in a really nice virtuous triangle. Uh, so it's quite an interesting model for us and one we're very excited to see. We're about six months into that loan now um, and we're, they've deployed, I think, the majority of the units. So we'll see how that all pans out. But it's a really exciting model for us to be working on and seeing how we can scale that over time. Excellent. This is complete working capital finance you know, in its, in its core form. Yeah. So tell us, tell us a little bit about the type of investors who invest in these projects. Sure thing. I, I don't have necessarily a good answer for this because it's quite a broad spectrum of investors. So I think one thing to touch on is our model. And so for all of the loans, they, they are inherently risky, right? We can't ignore that fact. We're investing in early stage companies, which is risky in of itself, in developing markets with new businesses, new technologies, new business models, there is risk in buckets, right? And we're aware of that. And we're very, very aware of that. And we don't try and hide from that fact. What we try and do is how do we then use financial instruments to mitigate that risk to incentivize private investors to come into the market? And so we knowingly are aware of the risks. So we adopt a blended finance approach in order to mitigate those risks across the board as much as we can. So for each loan, we calculate how much capital should we have that we put into what we call a first loss layer. And we embed that within the loan. And we typically raise that from a philanthropic organization, alternatively, just as an investor who's willing to accept a junior, a junior tranching. And, and what that means is they're willing to be paid back second. So if, if you were the investor, Sanjoy, and I was the junior debt and you were the senior debt, essentially what we'd have is you would get preferential repayment. You would be paid back first, and then I would be paid back after you, assuming that there's no default along the way. If there's a default within the loan, you will still have had more of your money back 
because I'm being paid second. And so it creates a nice risk buffer, essentially, to incentivize people to come into a risky market and make them far more comfortable with parting with their hard-earned capital and making these impact investments. So why is that relevant is it means that our investor base is quite broad because we have a couple of um, philanthropic foundations that we have onboarded. We have some businesses that invest with us and then the majority are retail investors. But I, we've done a lot of analysis. There's not necessarily a common thread yet. So we're still early days. But what you might expect would say, oh, well, it's only going to be you know, millennial investors. It's a big, big catchphrase or it's only going to be diaspora investors. But we find it's quite a broad spectrum. We actually see people from as young as 21, I believe, is our youngest investor, uh, up to 72, I think, is our oldest investor. Don't, it, it's a, quite a broad spectrum. Um, we're finding that it is, it is majority male, unfortunately, so far. But what we found is, in terms of who they are, they're a very broad spectrum. And in terms of their motivations to invest, we're seeing, we're seeing quite a big range. But actually, there's some unifying themes that people care about the impact these loans can generate. They care about those social outcomes. They care about mitigating climate change, but they also care that it's a financial return. People are not treating this as charity. And there's a really important distinction between impact investments becoming mainstream and staying on the fringe. If people just see them as charity, then they're gonna put in a different amount of money and they're not gonna treat them in the same way. And we're actually seeing that almost all of our investors, albeit they have a they're, they're open-minded about the loans in as much as they care about the impact they generate and they want to impact, they you want to generate impact alongside financial returns, they still care about their financial return. They would still be disappointed if there was a default and they still look at it as a legitimate investment opportunity. So it's, it's an interesting way when we analyze their motivation to see what is it that's important to them and then how we maintain communication throughout the loan life cycle that gives them both clear transparency and traceability on not only the impact, but also the financial performance. Interesting. Very interesting to me is the way you have built, uh, built in a blended finance structure, which is typically what institutional investors do into a crowdfunding platform. So if you are an entrepreneur in Nairobi or Accra or Lagos listening to this podcast, what would be your advice to them in making use of your platform? Yeah, I mean, the first thing would be get in touch. So we have um, a borrower questionnaire that is on in the platform um, within our borrower section. You just go fill that in and a member of the team will, will get in touch and we'll see whether it's a good fit for, for the type of funding we offer. I think a few points for a lot of people. The first one is really challenge yourself as a company as to what is the type of capital that's right for you rather than just applying for any available capital. And actually it's going to right size the loans you take on the equity you give out the grants you try and you try and achieve to make sure that you're getting the right type of capital for the stage of business you have next couple of pointers are really you know you're creating a relationship and that's really important to us we are managing this across the world global global investors global management of the different projects um and you're building a relationship and relationships are important. So don't be afraid to spend that time investing in the relationship. And that means responding well, you know, providing a good cadence of communication and actually not just disappearing for a few weeks with no information. So even if you're saying, you know, you don't have your audited accounts available, tell us, you know, share that information, share that and don't be afraid to keep that transparency because we are very aware we're investing in early stage businesses. We don't expect you to have all of the answers, but what we do expect is transparency, honesty, and communication. 
Um, so it's a really important part of just thinking of it as relationship building and not just trying to get money. Um, and I think that, I mean, that goes a long way with all investors, but especially for us where we're trying to develop a long-term relationship managed remotely, we're not just looking to do one loan with companies. You know, we want to do several loans that grow in size and scale over time to help the companies grow as well. So really that would be my, my key focus points. Right. And that's such a sound advice. You know, it's not just coming from an investor to an entrepreneur, uh, but an entre- actually an entrepreneur to another entrepreneur. So it's mm. really very sound advice. You know, you have talked a little bit already about how foundations can support your platform. Would you like to expand a little bit on it? You know, there are a lot of foundations who are interested in supporting local entrepreneurs in Africa. How should they work with you? Yeah, great question. I think one of the fundamental challenges we have and a big part of our mandate as a company is what do we need to achieve impact at scale? And the difference between electrifying one community and village to electrifying a hundred or a thousand, right? That's what we really want to be achieving with the capital we provide. And for us, the way to do that is by promoting sustainable, profitable business. And that challenges the instruments we're providing because one could argue, I argue definitely, it's a Gavriel Landau opinion, maybe not necessarily a charm impact one, uh, but says, grants are not necessarily achieving the impact outcomes we want to see because they fund a specific project rather than the business's growth. And actually, we need to achieve commercial outcomes and approach this with a commercial mindset because otherwise we have companies that continually rely on grants and are not then able to deliver the impact at scale that we need and crave in the world. So that's kind of a core part of our thesis. And so to do that, we look at blended finance as a new alternative way of using what was previously grant capital, but to achieve what we think could be better impact and commercial outcomes. So some of the ways we do that are with the match funding we've previously just mentioned on the first loss match funding, We're seeing that with, as our example with Havenhill earlier, results-based financing is becoming a much more prevalent instrument being used by grant makers to guarantee the impact outcomes they want. But if you're creating a burden where companies don't have the ability to actually access the capital they need to deploy to achieve your results-based finance initiative, then you're missing a puzzle piece here. So an organization like ours that's willing to take on that earlier stage risk is able to help out. And actually having a partnership from the outset that says, great, we've set up this results-based financing facility, and here's several financing partners that can help you pay for your inventory, get to the point where you can achieve the result. It's really good. And what we're also seeing then is other than that kind of tranching model we, we discussed already, is how can we use philanthropic capital, which for me is should be the most risk tolerant capital in the market to also mitigate other challenges like currency fluctuations, right? How can we come up with better models that protect local entrepreneurs from the potential negative currency fluctuations? I was speaking with, with one of our advisors the other day, um, and we were discussing what do we do about them? And actually, I think a lot of people penalize the borrower for a negative currency fluctuation when obviously it's something out of their control. But on top of that, we chose as an investor to go and invest in that market. It's our fault, not theirs. And we therefore need to be providing protection that not only looks after them and safeguards them, but also it limits the likelihood of default uh, and it creates that protection for the entire ecosystem of both all the investor, the donor or philanthropic organization, and finally, also the borrower themselves. And we should never forget them. And we always look holistically at the instruments we create to challenge 
is it advantageous to everyone in that ecosystem? And if not, why not? And so we're doing it in a purposeful way. I, I think my, my final thought on, on that, on the philanthropy side, is I think we're going to see a nice shift. My crystal ball moment is moving away from pure grant making, where we've seen a lot of capital being used and not necessarily the amount of progress we'd like to see. Um, great progress has been made, but I think we can do a lot more and we need to do a lot more to achieve the SDGs, um, especially within the challenging timeframes we have left. But where we're going to see philanthropy moving from grants to philanthropic debt, really promoting sustainable business and trying to remove that reliance on handouts and actually focusing organizations to be commercially minded to then enable them to achieve impact at scale. So there are any foundations listening, you know, we're very happy to be pioneering that model with you and to be trialing that out and seeing how can we use that to create better long-term outcomes for the market, for the borrowers uh, and for the industry as a whole. Uh, thank you. I do hope uh, foundations will be listening to this. And in particular, the point that you make about using philanthropic capital to absorb currency hedging costs or currency depreciation trends, I think is a very, very key point. One final question before I let you go. I noticed that you're a jiu-jitsu practitioner. What in, <laughs> what in martial arts makes you a better entrepreneur? Very good question. I... I'll try and answer this in a couple of ways, I suppose. I think some of the the aspects, I mean, I, I train a very traditional style of Japanese jiu-jitsu, so uh, less rough and tumble than sort of your MMA that you might see on the TV. Um, but I'd say there's some core attributes that I think have definitely stuck with me over the long term. I think the first one is resilience. I think it's something we we you have to have as a martial artist, but also you have to have as an entrepreneur. And if you aren't able to be resilient in the face of continual challenge, then the business will never grow. And so so I think definitely something I've taken away and I'd add on top of resilience is that perseverance is that attitude of knowing when to give up, but also not giving up until you need to give up. And, you know, so pick your battles, of course, but then going forwards, it's, it's really important for me is that persevere through those adversity and the challenges we're all going to face. The final one, I suppose would be, maybe this is more aspirational. I don't know that I embody this as much as I'd love to, but there's a, a concept in, in, Japanese sort of Zen Buddhism called Shoshin, which means the beginner's mind. And it's, it's a very simple but beautiful idea that explains that we should always be approaching things as a beginner so that we are always looking to learn and continually develop. And something, I don't know that I embody that as much as I'd like to, um, but it's definitely an aspiration of mine to always be adopting that Shoshin, that beginner's mind to enable me to really assess things critically and get the best outcomes for myself personally, for our team and for the company as a whole. Approaching things with a beginner's curious mind. Absolutely. Yes. On that note, thank you very much, Gabriel. It was wonderful having you here. No worries. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate thank it. You. Thank you. Follow me on LinkedIn, Medium, and Twitter to get fresh international perspectives of what people across the world are doing in this decade of climate action. Music